Welcome to Pomegranate Health and our first episode of IMJ On Air. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians and the IMJ is the Internal Medicine Journal. This is one of the college's three academic publications along with the Journal of Paediatrics and Child Health and the Occupational Medicine Journal. The IMJ is published every month and we've covered articles from there on the podcast before but this usually requires me to school up on a topic from scratch. Today we're starting with an exciting new format. I've invited the esteemed editors and reviewers of the IMJ to bring their wisdom along to interview authors directly. So you're going to hear experts chatting with experts and teasing out issues relevant to your clinical practice. At times we'll showcase original research of particular significance, but a good starting point for any generalist are the Clinical Perspectives articles. These reviews summarise the latest updates in management of major medical disorders. Today, for example, we've got leading respiratory physicians from the Royal Melbourne Hospital giving you a reader's digest on diagnosis and treatment for severe asthma. The article itself appears in the September issue of the Internal Medicine Journal. These IMJ specials won't always have broadcast quality audio because they'll be recorded over the internet rather than a trusty face-to-face microphone. And instead of our usual documentary style, they'll be a bit more raw and conversational. For our first outing, I'm going to hand you over to guest host, Associate Professor Daniel Steinfort. He's the Respiratory Medicine Section Editor for the IMJ, on top of his day job at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Dan Steinfort has recently won an award from the European Respiratory Society for his team's leading work on bronchoscopic ablation techniques for lung cancer. So now we are recording. Um... And a good place to start might be for you to each introduce yourselves for the for the record. Maybe you take it away, Daniel. Um, I'm Associate Professor Dan Steinfort, and I'm very pleased to be here with the authors of a recent uh, clinical perspectives paper, which presents an overview of recent advances in asthma management. Uh, we've got Associate Professor Nur Shiran Harun and Professor Joe Douglas, and we also have uh, Ash Witt, who is the lead author on the paper that we're discussing today. Ash, um, take it away. So my name's Dr Ash Witt. I'm a final year respiratory advanced trainee based at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Joe, would you like to tell us about your uh, CV? So my name's Joe Douglas. I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of Melbourne, Head of the Department of Medicine there, and also... I'm Director of Research at the Royal Melbourne, but before that I was a respiratory physician who spent much of my life in immunology and allergy and care of severe asthma. Um, Nurse, would you like to uh, quickly introduce yourself as well? Um, yep, so I'm Nurse Shirin. Um, I am one of the um, clinical leads for um, the asthma service at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, I am a general respiratory physician as well and work in general medicine both at um, the Royal Melbourne Hospital and Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Okay, so perhaps can I start first with when a patient presents to you with uh, suspected asthma, what are the first steps that you would take for diagnosis of asthma and to particularly st- begin to define their subtype of asthma? So I think that the most important question when someone gets to us in severe asthma clinic is, is this asthma? The characteristic symptoms of asthma, dyspnea, cough, wheeze are not unique to asthma and Often by the time someone has gotten to severe asthma clinic, they've met many, many doctors, they've met their GP, they've met probably a couple of emergency physicians and often a general physician, maybe another respiratory physician. And I think in asthma, as in all types of 
medicine, avoiding anchoring bias is really important and really defining whether this is truly asthma rather than COPD or bronchiectasis. Um, the diagnosis of asthma has two components. It has the character, you have to have a history of the characteristic respiratory symptoms. And importantly, in asthma, uh, it's not a constant disease. The symptoms vary over time and in intensity. And often patients will have exacerbations of very severe symptoms. And then the second part to the diagnosis is confirmed variable airflow limitation. Uh, one of the challenges in asthma is that many asthmatics will have normal spirometry and this doesn't exclude asthma and shouldn't dissuade us from the diagnosis of asthma. And the tools we have in Severe Asthma Clinic are to confirm the diagnosis, we can, uh, we can do bronchoprovocations so or administering an agent such as mannitol or metacholine to prove uh, hyper-responsiveness and induce obstruction. Uh, the other tools we have are giving the patient a handheld peak flow device and getting them to monitor their peak flow over a two-week or longer period. So the hyper-responsiveness of asthma will uh, have variable airflow um, obstruction over that time, whereas a non-asthmatic won't. Um, then I think the next important thing is establishing the impact of a patient's symptoms and spirometric values may not correlate with how disabled or how frequently exacerbating a patient is. And so ascertaining what the impact of those symptoms on the patient's life is really important. Um, then once the diagnosis of asthma is established, phenotyping um, is really important in the higher level treatment. So distinguishing between allergic asthma, eosinophilic asthma, or other types of asthma um, is really important when you're going to be prescribing biologics. So things such as serum IgE levels, serum eosinophils um, help you to do that. There are kind of accessory tests which don't make a diagnosis of asthma but are useful, such as expired nitric oxide, which is a surrogate for eosinophilic airway inflammation. Uh, there's also things like skin prick testing to common aeroallergens, which would be supportive of a diagnosis of allergic asthma but not diagnostic. And then going from there, then we can establish the patient on the treatments based on their phenotype that they have. And one of the one of the things that I found relatively novel for me in the article was the distinction between endotype and phenotype. Is that something that, that you begin to explore in the clinic or is that more based on biomarkers? So phenotype refers to the sort of asthma and the things that might actually trigger it um, and in particular I guess we're used to thinking of perhaps allergic or eosinophilic asthma but in truth all asthma doesn't have the same underlying inflammation and over the last really 20 years there's been a, a revolution thinking hard about what is actually the inflammatory nature or pattern of the underlying asthma so that someone who has say onset early in life and clearly has allergic triggers has obviously got quite a different sort of disease than someone who perhaps presents later in life and has dominantly eosinophilic or very profound eosinophilic inflammation with nasal polyps and aspirin sensitivity. So understanding the inflammatory pathways, which is certainly contributed to by biomarkers, but also has some historical features to it, can underpin our understanding of the inflammatory endotype of asthma. And that's become even more important in these days of the use of biological agents and in those with severe asthma so that we recognise that they're not all, that whilst many pathways can lead to the sort of things that Ash has described with reversible airway obstruction, that in fact the underlying inflammation can be quite 
different and it's important to understand that. And do you think the, the different phenotypes and endotypes are relatively well represented in the severe asthma clinics? Do, do you think it replicates what is seen at community level care or are there particular phenotypes that are overrepresented in your specialist asthma clinics? I think that phenotyping of asthma doesn't often occur until severe asthma clinic and I, I certainly in my experience of working on respiratory wards often patients come to hospital not having a phenotype that they know about. Um, it's often not explored until uh, they continue to have symptoms on maximal inhaled therapy. Um, you've written in the article that a significant proportion of fatal asthma exacerbations occur in patients whose disease had previously been misclassified as mild. So is how common are deaths from asthma? How, how many deaths occur in Australia each year from asthma? Is this something that we don't need to worry about anymore with all these new treatments? I, I don't think so. 400 people die every year in Australia from asthma. I don't, I don't think it's a disease of the past. Um, I think that one of the challenges is classification of severity is often done retrospectively after you've had a severe exacerbation. Um, I think that uh, certainly in a clinic or at a GP um, level, we're not we're not attributing severity in the way we do for other diseases. And often the reason we use the word severe asthma is for access to these advanced therapies. And so I think that it's important that important to note that of those patients who have uh, severe exacerbations and even fatal exacerbations, they might not necessarily have a label of severe asthma and be on a biologic. Um, any asthmatic can have an exacerbation at any time and we don't know what the, what the severity of that exacerbation will be. The biggest predictor of future exacerbation is previous exacerbation. Um, and I think that's important that if you've had a severe exacerbation, having the, the knowledge and the resources to start management early. I think that it's important that we all know, especially if the diagnosis of asthma is being made in the emergency department and general respiratory clinic or with the GP, telling patients that even if they've not had an exacerbation, that is something that can happen and making sure they know what to do when that happens. Yeah, it's a, a sort of follow-on from that. With the, the misclassification that you describe, where would that likely have occurred at which level of the health system? If, if they've had an exacerbation in the past and it was sort of brushed off, maybe it was not treated as severe, um, where is that most likely to happen? I think that's a hard one because I think you're absolutely right. If someone's had an exacerbation in the past that was severe and say required intensive care, then they're at risk for another severe exacerbation and that needs to be re remembered. But I think some of the asthma death studies show that those some, some people never were recognised as having a severe exacerbation. And to that extent, the notion of severe asthma necessarily being a risk for death from asthma, that is severe asthma as we currently classify it, may not necessarily be the same thing. And I think that's a really big question and a good point you've made that is really needing to be the subject of further research and indeed studies into asthma death. And can I ask as a follow-on, um, obviously as symptoms escalate, uh, traditionally we would escalate the dose of inhaled corticosteroids. Is that a good way to measure uh, severe asthma or are there other things that we need to be mindful of in, in classifying patients as, as, regarding their asthma severity? I think one of the challenges, and perhaps this is the reason that we don't label people as having mild, moderate or severe, is that it's so variable. And I, I think that the way that you approach 
classifying these patients is their spirometry, which can be normal, their symptom control, which we measure via a tool called the ACQ5, generally in our clinic, and then their exacerbations. And you know, there are patients who have very severe symptoms day to day who don't exacerbate frequently. And then there are patients who have no symptoms day to day who exacerbate frequently. And which one of those do you label as severe? I think that it's, I think there's much more nuance. And I think it's a really hard disease to attribute mild, moderate to severe. Well, I guess like we know what severe is, but we don't, we don't call, we don't say to people that mild or moderate as the way we do in other diseases. It's also, it's easy to know when someone is severe when they're in the hospital all the time, but there are a group of patients who aren't necessarily at the hospital, but probably by um, many classifications would have severe disease. And, and I guess it's the, the markers that, that signal that that we should be watching out for that I'd be really interested to know about. So I, th- I think a lot of it, um, you know, it can, can often be born out of the history, to be honest. So it's, it's the ones that are, as Ash has said, you know, the, the frequent exacerbators, the ones that are in hospital have had, a, you know, e- even one admission, but that was to ICU. Um, you know, high dose inhaled corticosteroids or um, oral corticosteroid use, um, you, know, you know, more than two courses in 12 months, you know, is a flag to come to a severe asthma clinic. And so, so I think those um, sort of markers are important. I think while the biomarkers are important, it doesn't necessarily classify someone as having severe asthma if they don't have, you know, the, the clinical correlation to that. So uh, one of the other concepts that I think is relatively new to me that I read in the paper was the was the term treatable traits. I gather this is a potentially a new paradigm for responding to persistent symptoms in asthma. How, how does that actually play out in the clinic? Um, so there's a... So treatable traits is, a, as you said, a new paradigm in understanding the factors that contribute to asthma control. There's a few different kind of concepts within treatable traits. I, I guess the, the first one that I think of is overlapping disorders. Uh, so someone who's had asthma their whole life and also smoked is still at risk of developing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but because their asthma won't go away, they, they can develop an overlap symptom called ACOS or asthma COPD overlap syndrome. Uh, patients who've had very frequent exacerbations may be at risk of developing um, bronchiectasis, uh, which needs to be treated in its own of its own merits despite the asthma. Um, comorbid vocal cord dysfunction, or the newer term for that is inducible laryngeal obstruction, which is asthma is a very frequent um, coexisting condition for that, um, and it relates to the um, paradoxical movement of the vocal cords, which can present as a wheeze or difficulty breathing and addressing those overlapping disorders and treating them with their own merits is part of treatable traits. There's also comorbidities which are not intrinsically linked to asthma but will worsen asthma control. So things like uncontrolled gastroesophageal reflux disease that could be both causing their cough and exacerbating their asthma. Um, The side effects of corticosteroids and the side effects of inhaled corticosteroids such as dysphonia and weight gain Um, Then there are lifestyle or environmental factors. Uh, So we know particularly in teenagers, uh, teenagers with asthma are more likely to smoke than their counterparts without asthma. And even though it seems very easy to say that smoking will worsen your asthma and you shouldn't do it, it doesn't mean that patients with asthma don't smoke. And counselling on smoking cessation um, is really, really important. One of the things that's come up in asthma clinic in the last year from that I've noticed is the 
you know, the prevalence of vaping and how many people have lost control of their previously well-controlled asthma because they're vaping. So addressing things like that. Um, patients may be working in a workplace that's triggering their asthma and they've not yet realized. I can think of countless examples of doing skin prick testing and saying, you know, do you know you're allergic to dust or do you know you're allergic to cats? And the patient says, that's ridiculous. I've got 10 cats. And like, that's why you're in severe asthma clinic. Um, so identifying those those things and addressing them of their own merits. Uh, one of the advantages of our asthma service is that we're intrinsically linked to our immunology service. And so considering whether patients may need immunotherapy to desensitize them to the era allergens for which that's available. Um, and then I think the final part of treatable traits is behavioral factors. So um, inhaler technique, as we've discussed extensively, adherence to their medications, what's stopping them from adhering, is it the price if we put them on an inhale, an inhaler that's combined drugs and that's less money that needs to be spent, would that help? Um, symptom perception is really important. Some people are poor perceivers of symptoms. Um, you know, there's, there's evidence that uh, patients who come, who migrate to Australia and women may under-report or under-perceive their symptoms and that's an important part of uh, making sure people uh, initiate their action plan and receive treatment at the right time. And you're having the social and family support. One of the things that I think makes asthma different to the other conditions that we treat as respiratory physicians is that it's really sudden and it's really scary and you can be living your life and doing your job and then all of a sudden you can't breathe. And that's very different to someone with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or interstitial lung disease who have symptoms at baseline all the time. And I think the fear of knowing when your next asthma attack is something that's really unique to our population. And there's things that we can do to address that, you know, referring to psychology, um, supports like the Asthma Foundation and support groups are really important in normalizing that. Um, one of the, the paradoxes of asthma is the fear of always knowing that you could have an asthma attack is going to make you more anxious and anxiety is a really common trigger for asthma and managing that can be really complex. I guess overall what treatable traits is, it's it's not things that make you at higher risk that we can't address. All of these things can, often with challenge, be addressed and that's part of the holistic model of care of a severe asthma clinic. There are frequently patients who once you get control of some of those treatable traits or comorbidities, their, their asthma is no longer severe and Many patients who are referred to the severe asthma clinic with the end intention of becoming on, being on a biologic, but then with the support of the clinic and treating those treatable traits may not end up needing one of the biologic agents. I think the other thing that's really essential to a severe asthma clinic is the nursing support and having the time to uh, go over inhaler technique, which we know is it's extremely common to have poor inhaler technique. Um, and your education about asthma management plans and self-managing asthma is a really important part of the severe asthma clinic. It's not just a biologic clinic. It's a holistic clinic that hopefully controls people's asthma in the, in the best way for that patient. If I could just answer the elephant in the room of severe asthma is always not just vocal cord dysfunction or other treatable traits, but also the elephant in the room is that 95% of people with asthma in the community will be controlled with moderate doses of inhaled corticosteroid if they have good inhaler technique. And so probably about 1 in 20 people, something like that, probably actually have severe asthma. And they're the people we want to see in the severe asthma clinic. So it's always the elephant in the room when you see someone with severe asthma 
are they really taking all the good things that will have been prescribed likely by the doctors they've seen before? And that's why Ash's comments about checking inhaler technique, getting by into an asthma plan and actually helping people manage their asthma optimally at that level is always really important before jumping to the next stage of treatment, but nevertheless really important to verify given all those things. For people in general practice or in general medical clinic, how do you actually assess the adequacy of people's um, technique for use of inhaled corticosteroids? So I don't think it's as difficult. I don't think there's an art to it. I think watching the patient use their inhaler, it can become very apparent that some people have never had a dose of their inhaler they've been on for many years. And I I think that when you prescribe um, when you prescribe inhalers, encouraging the patient that when they take it to the pharmacy to get the patient take it out of the package and have a dose in front of the pharmacist so that someone can watch them take it is really important. In Asthma Clinic, we've got lots of um, uh, devices with our medication that we can we can demonstrate. Um, but there, we frequently see people who've been on Ventolin for 20 years and they're, they're not actually administering the Ventolin in a way that it's going to get into their lungs. One of the other really important things is using a spacer um, or establishing whether the patient is never going to use a spacer and then putting them on an inhaler that doesn't necessarily need a spacer. And I think lots of people in clinic will say, yes, I'll use a spacer every time, but then won't necessarily do that when they get out into the community. Um, And I think that that's something that's also really important in an inpatient setting when someone's admitted under general medicine or respiratory with an asthma exacerbation on the ward round, watching them take their inhalers, it can be very obvious very quickly how ineffective their dose administration can be. Do you think use of a combination inhaled corticosteroid and beta agonist as a reliever medication uh, is a significant component of um, effective management of mild to moderate asthma? Yeah, and I think that that's something that's that's changed certainly since I've finished med school um, and done my training that and one of the take-home messages from the GINA guidelines in 2019 and our paper is that all asthmatics need to be on an inhaled corticosteroid. And I think of it that Ventolin is opening up their airways and providing temporary relief, but asthma at its core is an inflammatory disorder and it needs an anti-inflammatory medication to control it. And so having um, every time you take your uh, bronchodilator, having an inhaled corticosteroid at that point is going to mean you get more anti-inflammatory relief. I also think that for young people with asthma, having one puffer is much simpler. If you forget to take your morning dose, but it's your reliever that's in your pocket, you can take your dose later on in the day. For some groups of mild to moderate asthma, having their Simbacort just when they need it may be enough to control their symptoms. Um, So I think that it's an important, I guess, an important take home from the recent advances. And in particular, one of the things that we've tried to do is working with emergency the emergency department that if they're prescribing, if they're diagnosing a first presentation asthma, giving the patient an inhaled corticosteroid as part of their treatment regime. And often the easiest way to do that is to be on an ICS larva that can be used as a preventer and a and in, a preventer and a reliever, which is called smart therapy when we're using Simbacort, um, is a really important way to do that. On the occasion when I see someone who's been admitted to hospital with an exacerbation and they've been on a, uh, a long-acting beta agonist that isn't effective as a, uh, as a reliever, I'm never quite sure that the patients are convinced that my suggestion that we change inhaler to uh, use a preventer and reliever as a single puffer. Do you think that distinction is readily understood by patients? Um, and how do you ensure that that element of their, 
their drug uh, compliance is is up to scratch. I, I think that's really important. I think that making it extremely clear and you know, we're often seeing patients who've had asthma for many, many years and their whole life they've had a preventer they take in the morning and then they've had a reliever that's a different puffer that they take during the day and it can take quite a lot of time and quite an effort in the therapeutic relationship to re-establish this different paradigm of care. Um, but ultimately it's easier and uh, more effective control often for their asthma. I think the other thing that's really important for us to utilize is written action plans and written information about this. Uh, and so when you're writing an asthma action plan, having it very clear to the patient that on a day where they have no symptoms, they take their preventer. And then if they develop symptoms, they take their reliever and really spelling out what those two things are and that they're the same puffer. Um, and then having a further graded escalation management plan, which may include starting their oral steroids at home. I think a difference from in the, the past the past decade is giving the patient control of their disease and asthma is a lifelong disease. The patient's going to become an expert in their asthma and giving them the permission and the ownership of their disease that they know when they're having an exacerbation and they don't need to wait until it's at a crisis point where they call an ambulance. They can take their prednisolone at home. They can initiate their action plan at home and, of course, still have the support of contacting the asthma nurse or contact, contacting their GP. But if it's a, you know, it's a Friday night, not waiting until Monday to see their GP, just actioning their plan when it happens. It's also important to say there are the, the two paradigms. So maintenance and reliever treatment is a really good option for many patients. An equally valid option is maintenance treatment with reliever of a short-acting beta agonist. I think it's important patients have one or the other. And I think there is a risk sometimes with just using maintenance and reliever patients just don't use their maintenance treatment or don't get in high steroids or enough of it. So either paradigm can work. But as Ash said, certainly for very mild asthma, this is treatment people who have symptoms more than twice a month should be on an ICS larva by preference than just a short-acting beta agonist or low-dose inhaled uh, preventer. But we know the adherence with that is so low in, in people with mild asthma that probably they would be better on maintenance and reliever treatment. But at the severe end of the spectrum, I think either option is good and has benefits demonstrated in trials when it's used properly. And I think it's really this sort of move to personalised asthma management um, where, you know, you can use either paradigm, but it's about assessing, adjusting, you know, seeing how the patient responds and a bit of feedback, you know, both ways um, to get the best recipe for the patient. Um, you know, the, the written action plan is really useful and it's been proven to be effective. I think that, um, you know, we spend quite a bit of time in the as asthma clinics going through a written action plan, it's reiterated by the nurses. Um, and then oftentimes we can actually translate it into different languages for patients as well. Um, so I think something that patients can access, stick on their, you know, fridge, look at, you know, and often make sure that the, the GPs have um, a copy as well so that it's not confusing for, for, you know, the care providers involved. And we can all, we've all been involved in the care of patients who have very frequent, very nasty asthma exacerbations. But severe asthma, I'm sure, is a, a spectrum of disease. And at the less, at, at perhaps not the, the quite so drastic end of severe, what are the other clinical features that suggest to you that specialist asthma input should be sought? I think that one of the things that I, I worry about in our asthma clinic is that there are lots of people whose lives could be drastically improved by coming to asthma clinic that we don't, we don't see. Um, and I, I think it's important not to make severe asthma clinic, this very exclusive club that not everyone can access. Um, and so we, we've got these kind of, in our paper, we talk about things that we think should trigger referrals. 
you know, uh, frequent courses of um, oral corticosteroids, particularly people who are on maintenance oral corticosteroids, um, an exacerbation which has required a hospitalization uh, should consider a referral. Uh, but if someone has ever been to ICU for their asthma, they should be seen in a severe asthma clinic. Um, there are kind of there are patients where the diagnosis is in doubt, and I think that severe asthma clinic is a really good place to really work out how much of their symptoms are contributed to by asthma. Patients who are needing things like bronchoprovocation or higher level diagnostics to be diagnosed should be seen there. And then there are kind of the rarer and more tricky phenotypes such as occupational asthma, which we would like to see in that clinic. But I think that as a general physician or as a non-asthma specialized respiratory physician, if you think someone needs to be referred, they probably do. We've all got in our skill set the ability to prescribe inhaled corticosteroids. Um, and if you're not responding to moderate doses, having that specialist input can really be revolutionary for patients. Um, I remember when I when I first started advanced training, one of the first patients I saw in our asthma clinic was a she was a young woman. She was about my age, and she'd been on high-dose steroids for three years. She'd been in and out of hospital. She had every sequelae of high-dose steroid use. She had early-onset diabetes from the steroids, osteoporosis. She was overweight, had acne, and just felt like her life wasn't worth living. And she, her GP referred her to us, and she came into the room thinking that we were going to say there was nothing we could do. And we, we started her on mepolizumab, and over the next six months, watched her life turn around and she got off the steroid. She lost 20 kilos, started working, um, found a boyfriend, you know, her life just changed. And it was, you know, there's not many things in medicine that are as magic as putting someone with severe asthma on a biologic. And it was a huge reason why I chose respiratory as a specialty. There's, you know, the days where you think, have I made a difference today? The days where I've done severe asthma clinic, I really feel like I have. And I, I think frequently that there are all these people we could be helping and I worry that prior to respiratory training, I thought biologics were for these really severe in ICU all the time patients, but it's not just for that. They're, it's for anyone who's not controlled on a moderate dose ICS. And so I think having a lower threshold to refer, I hope is a take home for, from our paper. Um, yeah, it's great that you mentioned the biologic uh, treatment options that are increasingly available for people with severe asthma. How many patients in a severe asthma clinic will be on biologic agents? Nurse, would you like to speak to that? Yeah. Um, so I'd say the majority of um, patients coming through a severe asthma clinic um, would be on biologics, and that's probably a selection bias. So they've, you know, likely, as, as Asha said, come through a GP or other respiratory physicians. Um, they've often tried a lot of other um, treatments. Um, so I think the purpose of the asthma clinic, obviously, is to try and um, ensure that we have the correct diagnosis and that we, as best we can, have gripped them um, by intertype phenotype um, or, or perhaps they don't have asthma at all. And, and there might be other things such as vocal cord dysfunction, which needs another treatment pathway. Um, in our clinic, you know, the large majority of patients requiring biologics are um, and allergic asthmatics, and that would be the majority that we see. A, a smaller proportion of the um, the the porcy granulocytic or neutrophilic um, asthmas, which are often more difficult to treat, um, and um, other treatment modalities such as macrolides might become more important there. So essentially, the large majority of patients are on biologics. Um, there are increasing um, treatment modalities on biologics. So initially, we had the anti-IgE therapy omelizumab, um, which certainly was very effective and really did revolutionise treatment um, and improve, you know, quality of life substantially for patients. 
Um, however, there were certain proportions that were still not well controlled on that. And um, the, the later, the anti-IL-5 treatments, um, mepolizumab and medrolizumab, came next and um, certainly were also very effective. We now have dupilumab that has been recently PBS approved and, and um, anti-IL-4. And there are, there are certainly further agents overseas which are coming to Australia, um, such as the IL-33 um, and IL-4 monoclonal antibodies. I'll just chime in there. That's another question in terms of if you're stepping up after inhaled corticosteroids and oral corticosteroids, what are your choices guided by of which of the biologics? is Do they line up with specific endotypes or is it a is it sort of empirical like it always has been? Uh, Joe, would you like to? Sure. So, so omelizumab, which was the first available biologic, is an anti-IgE, and so that is really useful for allergic asthma. Dupilumab, which is the more recent one, is also indicated for allergic asthma, and that antagonizes L4 and 13, so obviously a lot of important cytokines on the pathway in allergic disease. The other two that are currently available in Australia, mepolizumab and benralizumab, and both of those are anti-eosinophil agents, although they work quite differently. And so it's important to understand the endotypes of asthma when prescribing them because it's important as Ash said to see uh, to, to actually offer patients the one that's really going to benefit them and there's no doubt when these drugs work well they're absolutely life-changing for people so it's really a great time to be practicing in that regard but they do require you to, to understand the endotype of the patient and there's obviously quite a bit of overlap because a lot of allergic asthma is eosinophilic and determining that is perhaps some of the skill and whilst we can swap between them that's often wasted time for patients so it's important to try and get it right first time if we can. I think the other thing to say about the biologics is that, uh, particularly the PBS access to them, um, and this is a lot of what we do in the severe asthma clinics, is trying to establish the criteria or who's going to benefit from the biologics. And the previous criteria require to be, you know, have had asthma for, for 12 months um, and for there to have been a reasonable attempt to optimise that with inhaled corticosteroids or um, long-acting beta agonists. We have to demonstrate that you know we, we definitely do have a diagnosis of asthma, which can sometimes be tricky. Um, but there are various ways to do that, and then you know um, endotyping, phenotyping, um, biological markers such as the eosinophil count that we talked about, um, Ig levels, and then this this requirement for high dose oracle corticosteroids or a cumulative dose, you know, over 500 milligrams over 12 months is sort of that sort of requirement to access some of these biologics. And of course, hospital admission, as Ash said, or a severe exacerbation um, or uncontrolled asthma as determined by an asthma control questionnaire, um, often criteria that need to be met. Um, asthma was on the front page of the news in a huge way around the globe uh, following the Melbourne thunderstorm asthma event in 2016. Uh, and I think you've all been involved closely in, in, the, in the subsequent study of that event. Was that asthma as we know it or was that a very different event? So I think it was it was certainly an extraordinary event. Um, it was not a unique event to Australia. We've had many thunderstorm asthma events um, previously, um, but it probably was one of the biggest around the world. There were about 3,000 emergency department presentations. Um, some required intubation in ICU. Um, tragically, about 10 patients died um, out of that, some of which never made it to hospital. And I suppose the, the factors that were thought to um, be, be implicating why that was such a difficult and, and catastrophic episode was that it was a, essentially a susceptible population. Um, so, you know, patients were highly sensitised um, um, in Melbourne. We had a day that there was um, high humidity, it was very hot and there was rain activity. 
and it occurred at about 5 p.m. So patients, you know, people were in the streets, um, you know, outside when there was, you know, a, a gust of hot, rainy weather, which which often brings the pollen particles down to inhalable level, um, and humidity ruptures the pollen particles so they can get down into the airway. Um, so it was a series of events that, you know, sort of the Swiss cheese lining up where um, certain environmental factors lined up, um, and many patients were exposed often and patients that had no idea that they um, were at risk of asthma um, got caught up in that. These 3,000 patients that were affected, it occurred within a very short period of time, um, most of them um, occurring within the first 30 hours. So that really overwhelmed emergency services. It, it overwhelmed um, hospital EDs um, and was really unprecedented in terms of the chaos that sort of ensued. Um, so if we look at the figures, they're kind of stark. There was sort of um, a 900 and 92% excess asthma-related hospitalisations um, across Geelong and uh, metropolitan Melbourne that day. Um, it wasn't just the hospital system that was overwhelmed. There were um, local pharmacies and you know, GPs that were also pretty overwhelmed with patients running out of salbutamol um, from, from pharmacies. Um, and same thing occurred actually in hospitals. So patients were often discharged either without proper follow-up or proper action plans in some instances proper medication wasn't given. Now, that was just, a, you know, a, a symptom of an overwhelmed health system. Um, and what it really brought to light is, it, you know, the, the, I guess the prevalence of asthma in the community is about 10%. Um, um, in Australia, about 10% of people have asthma. So it's pretty common. But it really drove home that people can have no symptoms and be affected by asthma in, in the correct circumstances. Um, we published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology the TASAR study. Um, some of the things that came out of that, um, a, a third of patients um, didn't actually have an asthma diagnosis. Um, and a lot of those patients, you know, some of those patients that died actually did not have an asthma diagnosis. But what are the things that we can learn from this event? And what were there markers before um, that maybe might have um, led us to the fact that these patients were at risk? Um, so we have looked at the cohorts of particularly um, patients in Australia, and there are patients overseas um, in Italy, Canada, and, and various other places in the UK that have been affected by thunderstorm asthma. Um, but nearly universally, all patients had um, a history of seasonal um, allergic rhinitis, or hay fever. Um, they were sensitised to often ryegrass, so there was IgE-specific ryegrass sensitivity that we could detect in blood. Um, and the patients often had lower FEV1s when you looked at them, higher severe asthma scores when you, when you looked at their questionnaires, um, high phenos um, and high eosinophils. So I think some of the um, lessons that came out of it were that I looked at the individual sort of aspects and then the sort of population aspects. For the individual aspects, some of it was common sense about optimising asthma control, you know, use of inhaled corticosteroids, which a lot of patients were not on that ran into trouble, um, action plans which we've talked about, um, and then treatment of allergic rhinitis, because we think that this is, you know, a huge risk factor for, for this sort of event. Um, and then that leads on to, you know, potentially looking at other treatments such as immunotherapy and desensitisation as adults as in some patients. Um, for the population, I think there were a lot of, um, I guess, campaigns that came out of it. So, you know, your at-risk days, your pollen counts, it's now, um, you know, sort of publicised or televised or on, uh, comes on the radio if there's a high pollen day or there's a risk of thunderstorm asthma. And, you know, it might be that the patients that are at risk, that know that are at risk, you know, stay indoors during that time, make sure that, you know, their, their asthma is optimised, that they have enough medications. Um, but it's also highlighting in patients that don't have a history of asthma, what, you know, what are some of the symptoms of asthma, what are some of the symptoms of um, allergic rhinitis. Um, 
Further to that, I think, you know, things like preparedness, even in the emergency departments, um, we've done quite a bit of work with, you know, having asthma packs in the emergency departments that have action plans, um, you, you know, you, you sort of reliever ICS in that pack. So that's you sort of first up rather than a lot of the Ventolin that was being given to patients and taken home in 2016, which we think was less than ideal. So it's about getting, I guess, um, education out there, preparedness packs, and that comes through, you know, GPs, pharmacies, um, EDs, not just through respiratory physicians um, and asthma clinics. You noted there that there was a, a shortage of Ventolin around the thunderstorm asthma event. And I think on an earlier episode of the podcast on this pomegranate health series, it was suggested that perhaps uh, Ventolin should be made available as part of an action plan. Um, what's your views on that approach? So I think that um, notwithstanding the recent changes where we think that um, inhaled corticosteroids really should be in the mix, you know, we, we wouldn't advocate for short acting beta agents to be used up front or alone on their own um, anymore. Um, I think some access, you know, access is better than no access. So I think, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad thing that salbutamol is available over the counter. And if nothing else, it allows an interaction with, you know, a health professional of some form, often the pharmacists who are pretty cluey in terms of education, um, highlighting when patients might need to, to seek medical attention. Um, and they often have oversight about, you know, how many scripts are being provided, for instance. So I think there's an opportunity there. And I think... In Australia, it's unlikely ever to change in that I think it's so accepted that you can go to your community pharmacy and get salbutamol, that there is just no appetite to address this, despite there have been attempts in the past to change the rules. And Australia's unique internationally in providing this access. But having said that, I think it will be unpalatable to the community to try to do so. So we have to use that, as Nurse said, a touch point with a health professional is a really good is, to, is, the, is the best advantage of the system that we have. It might be a slight understatement to say that uh, an event bigger than the thunderstorm asthma event was the COVID pandemic. Early on, there was a, a large degree of concern that asthma patients might actually be a, a subgroup that were at particularly high risk of severe COVID illness. But I believe that that hasn't actually been borne out in the studies. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Dan. I think, you know, early in the pandemic, there was a lot of um, anxiety about particularly asthma patients um, or patients with, you know, chronic respiratory disease um, and, and what that would mean for them. I, I guess, you know, on the back of, you know, the thunderstorm asthma, we were all, you know, on edge. But um, thankfully for us, it, 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 was, no, it was never borne out. Um, so there's been quite a number of studies looking at this and, and the, the reasons for why, you know, asthma was not found to be a risk factor ranges from, you know, maybe um, definitions of asthma varied or, um, you know, sort of a heter heterogeneous population. So it was difficult to actually look at that. Um, you know, personally, I think that a lot of the, the asthma patients, particularly through the severe asthma clinic, were also on edge. So they, you know, they, they were really compliant with their inhaled corticosteroids. We know that that's protective um, and they often had action plans. So it might be that, you know, asthmatics or severe asthmatics had some sort of background medication um, that might have been protective for that. Um, we know that asthma is not a risk factor for either COVID infection or severity. And we think that there's a role for eosinophils in um, protection against viral infections, for instance. Um, and it might be that, um, you know, so these patients with high eosinophils or propensity to have high eosinophils were actually protected in some way. Um, we also know that inhaled corticosteroids decrease the expression of pulmonary angiotensin converting enzyme 2, and this is a, this receptor is um, used by the coronavirus that um, 
SARS-CoV-2 virus um, to enter cells. So there might have been some interactions there that actually might have been protective. So um, part of the advice around the time for our asthmatics and still remains the advice is, I guess, diligence with inhaled corticosteroids, ensuring that asthma is optimised, back to those written action plans. Um, and then um, the other measures um, that were introduced to COVID, such as mask wearing and hand hygiene and, and those sorts of measures, which um, have for the most part kept our patients out of, out of trouble, I think. There's also the recommendation that patients who have severe asthma on biologics actually receive antivirals on the onset of disease, which perhaps the statistics um, show a slightly greater risk on those who have severe asthma. So perhaps that's the group that we should be worried about. But having said that, with the availability of antivirals, that's a really positive thing that we should remind patients with severe asthma to contact their GP about to get access. Well, Nick, are you happy if I make some concluding remarks? Yeah, I was just about to say, I think pretty naturally covered all the bases. Uh, so that's a really thorough uh, look at asthma triggered by a really informative paper that I think is quite practical for people involved in day-to-day -day care of asthmatics outside the severe asthma clinic. Um, I'm really grateful to Dr. Ashwit, Associate Professor Nurshiran Harun and Professor Joe Douglas for joining us. And I, I think that uh, that's been a, a fantastic experience for me to talk through those. I hope the listeners have found the same. Many thanks to Ash Witt, Nilshirin Harun and Joe Douglas for contributing to this episode of Pomegranate Health. And special thanks to Dan Steinfort for being our first guinea pig in the guest host chair. I should also give a nod to IMJ Editor-in-Chief Jeff Zer for being an advocate of the podcast from day one, as well as other members of the editorial board and staff who helped bring this together. The Internal Medicine Journal is published by Wiley, and all RACP members have complimentary access to it, along with the Journal of Paediatrics and Child Health and the Occupational Medicine Journal. Just go to racp.edu.au slash fellows slash resources slash journals and follow the links. There are also instructions for submitting an article of your own. That could be breaking research, a case report of exceptional interest, or even a letter to the editor. Another member service that has been launched recently is the RACP online community. It's a networking tool for members that has discussion rooms for many different specialty interests and areas of college advocacy. There's also a neat feature to help trainees and mentors find their perfect match. You can log in right now from your mobile by searching for the app called RACP The Rock. If you liked this episode of Pomegranate Health, please leave a review at your preferred podcast portal and ask your friends to check us out. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and this podcast was produced on Gadigal Land. Thanks for listening.